accessing agent files. Brian Sovereign. Early 21st Century Anarchist. Creator and host of the podcast Sovereign Check. By the year 2021, the show would be instrumental in the downfall of various conservative ideologies in the government. Helping usher in an incredible time. Hey, want to take a walk on the wild side and experience the bleeding edge of technology? Then get ready because it doesn't get much more edgy than this. You're in for a wild ride. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with your host, the man in triple black, the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. He's got a huge brain. And now here's Brian. Oh, yes. Putting the sin back in Sovereign. The golden stallion here with you, the baddest boy on the blockchain. Oh, hell yeah. Because did I get some heat for what I had to say about Ethereum last week and about a whole bunch of different uh, blockchain technologies. But uh, hey, that's what I'm here for, right? To be able to say the things that no one else is willing to say or maybe that nobody even thinks to say. So thank you so much for joining me this week. Uh, Let's get right into the rapid fire stories uh, some pretty exciting stuff coming up here uh, from actually from a company called Open Whisper Systems. And we're going to talk a little bit about them more later in the episode. Uh, but Open Whisper Systems are the guys that have been developing Tech Secure and Redphone, two of probably the best options as far as encrypting, uh, g- you know, c- communications goes. Uh, of course, Tech Secure being one of the most secure systems for uh or you know apps for communicating with people out there and it completely it's it's a great uh sms messaging system as well that'll just you know totally skin itself over your your sms system on your phone uh, it's really great stuff and redphone is a great way to talk to people using encrypted communications kind of like csip simple does and the nice thing that's going on with what with open whisper systems is that now they're putting all of these technologies that they have together and it's called Signal. Now, this is available for iOS. I haven't messed with it yet, but I love this company. They do stuff open source. They're the real deal. And Signal, which will include, again, being able to encrypt your phone calls, being able to encrypt your text messages, will be available for Android soon. So keep your eyes open for that. I think this is one of the uh, really one of the best things to come out in a while uh, as, as far as communication technologies via your phone. Uh, so again, do keep an eye out for that. Again, Signal by Open Whisper Systems. And if you're not using Text Secure or uh, Redphone, I definitely recommend looking into both of those. Uh, they're very, very good at what they do. Uh, now for a little more vindication, uh, Amazon. And, you know, this is my, I guess this is kind of my pet tech subject, right? Uh, because I called long before anyone else in the media called that Amazon was priming itself (laughs) for the really uh, taking over the entire marketplace, be it Internet, meat space, retail, whatever. And now they're going even last week. I mentioned how now they have a wallet app available. Now they're going even further. 
because now what they're doing is they're actually they're going to take on Square. Okay, which means by and large, actually, that they're also taking on PayPal inadvertently with they are going to come out with a device that will connect to your smartphone or tablet that will allow you to accept credit card payments and debit card payments. So it'll be a physical device that you can get your hands on and then you can get paid through, you know, through Amazon and you can collect stuff through Amazon. And not only that, now they're also this just got announced. They're coming out with a seller app. Which, you know, a lot of people know that you can buy, you know, used and new and refurbished stuff on Amazon from various third-party sellers. Now they're, they're making an app that will uh, allow you to, to really work within that system. So they're creating uh, very much, you know, an entrepreneurial space for people to work within, completely within their ecosystem. So please understand, Amazon does not need Bitcoin. I love Bitcoin, okay? But Amazon doesn't need it. And if anything, they're bigger and they can be bigger. And like I've said a million times before, because also remember, they've got their point of sale systems that they're going to be installing in retail stores everywhere for a little over a hundred bucks, okay? Uh, a pop. And that's insanely cheap. Remember, we talked about that. Uh, they've got that. They have Amazon payments already set up. They've got now they're they're creating a phone. They they're going to have a you know their own phone service. Which whenever they get around to actually allowing that to be paid for with payments, uh, that's going to be huge. But right now, I think they have a, a specific deal with AT and T. Wait till they get rid of that. Uh, they have the Fire TV, which is getting exclusives, exclusive games, hot games, including the the return of Flappy Bird. And, and that, that was insane. So they're taking over. Honestly, they are available more so than any other company and more so than any other technology. They are at the heart of everything that you do as far as consuming, uh, you know, purchasing, selling, entrepreneurship, take your pick. They are at the heart of it all. And all these things are available. Now, of course, the question could become, is any of it actually any good? Well, value is subjective. That's up to you. But the point is, is that they're there, they have the ability, and really, I think the price point at which all these things are available to be done at uh, is huge. You know, or I mean, it's really minuscule, so that's huge for them to attract people to do business with them. Uh, so let's see, moving on a little bit. Uh, we also, one thing that a lot of people asked me to talk about this week, uh, this week there are a couple of really big reveals, one of them not so shocking, the other uh, pretty shocking of uh, security holes in, uh, you know, in the tech world. One of them has to do with the USB firmware, where they found out that crackers have actually been able to insert malware into the actual firmware, not onto like, say you have a flash drive. Okay. A USB flash drive. They're, you're not putting it in the flash memory. You're actually putting it in the firmware of that connects the USB device to whatever device you're connecting it to. And so, you know, uh, virus scanners, malware scanners aren't designed to look for that. You know, it's pretty much with USB in that, in that way, with that firmware that this malware has gotten inserted to is very much, I mean, this is open ports, you know, legs wide open here. And now you find out that, uh, <laughs> that there can be, just malware right in that. And so pretty scary. 
but I'm not going to comment on that this week. Also, there was the Tor problem. They found out that Tor is getting unraveled and that anonymity may not be so possible. That was released this week as well. That one's not so shocking because it's been known about for a while. It was being done by a third party. It was not something that the government was doing, yada, yada. Uh, Black Hat, the Black Hat Hacker Conference is this week. And so I am going to wait until I hear more from that before I give full comment. So you can expect that probably next week when I will be commenting on those two issues. So please don't be looking for that this episode, Uh, but definitely something to read up on. Another interesting or some more interesting news. Uh, Google plus is getting deconstructed more and more. Uh, It turns out this week, Google released so that hangouts, you can now use hangouts. Okay. Which is video hangouts. uh, You know, all that stuff can now be done without having a Google plus account. And that's pretty big because also Hangouts got separated from uh, where Hangouts would, when it would link to someone in your, say, on your phone app, before it would go to their Google Plus profile. Now it just goes to your contacts. There's a lot of deconstruction of Google Plus happening. And also Bloomberg this week reported that, you know, that hasn't been an official word from Google itself, but that Google is going to make it so that the photo app, the photo service, which is actually a really nice service that Google Plus offers, is going to be separated and repackaged away from Google Plus. So pretty much they're going to bring back Picasso, right? <laughs> which about a year ago, I think they they quietly eliminated Picasso. But seemingly they're going to go back to that, whether they're going to call it Picasso or not, it's a whole other story. Uh, but yeah, so Google Plus, you know, all the attractive features that bring it to it is, is, you know, again, it's getting deconstructed. It's all getting decentralized, which I think that's a good thing, of course, that that things get decentralized. I hope, my biggest hope, that the one thing that I wanted to get separated from is uh, the Google Play Games service. I really want Google Plus to get separated from that because then really at that point for me, there's no point to having a Google Plus account at, at, at that stage in the game. Uh, even for promotion wise, I get so much more promotion uh, or so much more visibility out of Twitter than I do out of anything else. I, you know, any other social service that I'm on. Okay. So, uh, you know, that's fine with me. If Google plus gets broken up, I think that's okay. In fact, Jeff Jarvis, uh, who hosts this week in Google, he actually made the, made the great point that, that Google plus kind of that whole centralization, he felt that that's very anti-Google of them to do that to where they put all their eggs in one basket. That's up to debate. I mean, of course, at the end of the day, it's all server-based, so it's completely centralized, but that's a, that's an interesting point to consider. Uh, so I'll, I'll let you chew on that, but uh, moving on, speaking of other apps and things getting separated, uh, Facebook is now requiring people to use the Uh, messenger app the facebook messenger app and that in the facebook app for android and ios doesn't have the messenger uh icon in it anymore and so you can't access your your pms you can't access your private messages from within the facebook app you have to go to the facebook messenger app to do that now uh and whatever this doesn't mean a whole lot to me i mean when i use facebook messenger i usually use i use chat secure from the guardian project to access it. Uh, or if you use the, if you just use the website, the mobile website of Facebook in your mobile web browser, like Atlas, great, great web browser, then, you know, it's still there. It's all still in one. And you also get the benefit of the fact that Facebook's apps 
are battery killers. I mean, they are battery drainers because they're just constantly sending back and, you know, data back and forth. Uh, most people that care about their battery life do not install the Facebook app or, you know, really any of their apps. Uh, Instagram's kind of a different story, I suppose, but by and large, nobody installs, uh, you know, their other apps because they're just, they're such hogs, resource hogs in, in many ways. Uh, so I recommend, honestly, if you don't like the fact that the messenger app is somehow separate or that she, or you don't like chat heads, of course you can, you can turn chat heads off in the messenger app, right? If you don't like any of that, just, just go to start using the mobile website. Okay, create like a shortcut with the Atlas web browser or whatever web browser you use onto your desktop and just use that as your Facebook app from now on. It'll save you a ton of battery. If you have a limited data plan, it's going to save you a ton of data. It's really the way to go. And also, you don't get those crazy notifications all the time. And so you can actually concentrate on the here and now instead of wondering, holy shit, what did somebody say on Facebook? Uh, so check that out. Um, and, and, you know, because again, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think Facebook's doing a bad move here per se. It makes a lot of sense what they're doing. I mean, and hopefully sooner or later, they're going to integrate WhatsApp with, with Facebook, I would assume, or with the messenger, I would assume, but whatever, it just, it's kind of meaningless to me. And I imagine to a lot of my listeners, uh, but something that is not meaningless is, and speaking of batteries, Stanford researchers have created what they're calling the Holy Grail of battery technology and woo boy did they of course it's debatable whether or not they're ever going to be able to implement this it might be kind of an expensive thing to do but uh, without getting too technical on a tech show <laughs> uh, essentially they solved the problem to where they could use lithium anodes okay which would allow for an incredibly efficient uh, battery life you know and and, and battery processes and what, how they did this was, is that around, see, normally when you have a lithium anode, okay, which, you know, helps with your negative charge, but normally when you get a lithium anode, it will expand so much that it becomes unusable and like the battery just, just dies very quickly. Okay. Now what they've done is to keep it from, to keep that from expanding, they have put a little carbon, uh, you know, carbon nanotube sphere, <laughs> Okay, around the anode, around the lithium, and that key, that constrains it, that keeps it from from expanding. And this is, I mean, this is genius work, absolute genius. It's huge. Uh, I recommend reading up on it, especially if, if you're more of the you know more the the, the scientific type. Uh, definitely check it out because this is a uh, a chemistry miracle. Frankly, uh, I was really impressed to hear about this. Uh, so, you know, it, hey, I mean, when if this is ever actually going to get rolled out, because sure, you can come up with great ideas, but then implementing them and getting them out to the mass market can often be a very different story. Uh, and but I would think that people would be excited about this, you know, Samsung and whatever other company, because then they I mean, they could charge a premium for the fact that these batteries, you know, more or less these pure lithium batteries could. Yeah, I mean, they could run for days, possibly. And who wouldn't want, I mean, wouldn't you hash out an extra hundred, two hundred dollars a pop for a phone that you would only have to charge maybe once a week? I mean, I, I'm being exaggerating. We're not really sure what kind of battery life this would actually offer. It may even be more than what I'm exaggerating, uh, or it could be less. But even then, if a, if a battery could run, you know, for two or three days more uh, on, a, on a charge, that'd be phenomenal. Hell yes, I'd, I'd spend a couple hundred extra bucks 
for a battery that did that. And in some ways I already do. I buy, you know, those zero lemon batteries that, uh, I mean, they only cost like $40 more, but I have one on my, my galaxy Nexus and you know, my battery goes two, three days, but of course my phone's huge, (laughs) but, uh, you know, so this is something that I think people would really be interested in. And I think they'd pay a premium for if they can actually implement it well. So we'll keep a lookout for that. Uh, let's see, moving on. Let's, yeah, let's get into our main story. And our main story has to do with uh, Kindle Unlimited. And if you're not sure what Kindle Unlimited is, I'll give you a, a really brief description. Uh, Kindle Unlimited is a service for $10 a month, okay, whether you have Prime or not, but $10 a month. And in that $10 a month, you have access to 600,000, I think, titles, books, ebooks that you can read totally for free anytime as much as you want. It also gives you access to uh, a large chunk of the Audible library, a few thousand titles out of that. Okay, so you can also listen to unlimited audiobooks as well. Now, this is, you know, this is different from, because some people instantly ask, well, how is this different from Prime? Okay, well, first off, Prime, of course, doesn't give you access to the Audible library. Also, Prime does let you borrow books, so many, such and so many titles for a month straight, you know, one per month, though. That's kind of the kind of the the gaff. Okay, and so since it's just, you know, one per month, I mean, I, I guess that's where they feel Kindle Unlimited is desired, or maybe they feel that a lot of people are not paying the higher price for, for Amazon prime. Maybe. Uh, I mean, the first thing I'll say right out the gate is that if you already have Amazon prime, I don't really see the point to Kindle to you getting Kindle unlimited. Uh, I mean, you know, and I'm a pretty voracious reader, but, uh, uh, you know, a book a month is pretty good. (laughs) I mean like that, that's these days with so many like blogs to read so many things to read, Uh, I, you know, I mean, yes, I know people that still get through a book a week or whatever. Um, but again, also you're only getting access to some odd 600,000 titles. Uh, and most of those titles within Kindle unlimited are, you know, they're lackluster. They're maybe the big stuff, uh, that you could probably, I don't know, you know, it's not the interesting titles. And also you still, you have the problem of, of Amazon with, uh, with Hachette publishing, uh, where they're, you know, they, they have a bad deal going on. And so there's a lot of major titles, even not just the ones that aren't interesting, like, uh, because what's interesting with, with Kindle, with the Kindle library is that you get these really rare books by people that would have never been able to publish, you know, 10 years ago, they just, they would have never, it would have never happened. And so you can get these really far out books, maybe like some of the, uh, some of the more, the more erotic stuff that we've talked about in the past on this show, uh, like dinosaur porn, right? <laughs> uh, you know, n- none of those things are, are really available in general. Okay. So I'm not really seeing the value here, uh, f- for this because you're not getting, maybe it'll change in, you know, in the future, maybe more of the stuff will be accessible. I don't know. Um, now, if you're a major audiobook listener and you just plow through those, then maybe Kindle Unlimited is worth it because you get access to, you know, so many books uh, on Audible. So in that case, OK, I get it that that might very much, you know, be be a great thing, especially since I think an, an Audible 
uh, subscription costs maybe what is it 12 bucks a month or something along those lines or if you want to get a couple audiobooks it's like 20 24 dollars a month something along those lines so in the, for audible i can see this making sense just for for books i don't necessarily now let's talk about because i think the the elephant in the room the 800 pound gorilla in the room is ooh gorilla maybe we should talk about gorillas later uh, <laughs> uh, maybe actually i guess it's 15 bucks for for an audible uh, account i was just told via the skypes by the lovely and hyper intelligent dr stephanie murphy the goddess of godlessness uh informed me kindly anyway <laughs> uh so let's let's talk about you know again the 800 pound gorilla the 800 pound ape that how are writers going to get paid their royalties if all their books are available via a subscription service. Now, this was the first thing that came to my mind when this you know, story broke a couple months ago, or, or a couple weeks ago, I should say. And finally, the answer came, and it was that you will get a percentage of a pool uh, based upon how many, how many pages get read of your book and how often your book you know, gets how often it gets lent. And then there's a certain amount of pages that have to be read within the book to consider it, uh, comparable to a sold ebook. And when that happens, you can get something up to like maybe $2 a book, which considering, you know, that most ebook titles, especially the, the ones done by, uh, you know, by, by, by private authors often only sell for a buck 90 or, you know, often only sell for about five bucks, maybe less, maybe more, whatever the, the percentage will add up. But, but really there's this huge pool that, that you'll be drawing from now. I'm a little worried about this. Okay. That seems more or less fair. Uh, in fact, actually in a way I get the feeling that people are going to make a whole lot more money than they normally would because people are going to download a book, preview the book, by reading quite a bit into it, and maybe it'd be just enough to where you sell the book. So this is superior for the authors than what Amazon Prime does. And so I can see where people might make a lot of money off of this, you know, and in fact, yeah, I, I have wonder, I mean, how many people are going to pay into this, not want to read a book, but they're actually going to do a degree of crowdfunding through it. To where, oh, I know this guy, I'll flip through his book, you know, however many pages are required, and uh, and then he'll get a paycheck. You know, I, I could see that, that kind of gaming of the system happening. But while that could be a benefit, in the end, this is something I don't think that's meant to work. Of course, other companies offer this sort of thing. Uh, Oyster is a big one. Uh, I think uh, is Scribdy or, or Smashwords, I think it's Smashwords, that actually offers similar services, uh, you know, but at, at the end of the day, I don't think that this is actually really going to work out for authors because I mean, other than like, like this, this kind of quasi crowdfunding that can occur for you, this isn't like when Netflix makes house of cards. I mean, everybody involved in house of cards makes an advance. They make a paycheck just from producing it. Okay. As to where with publishers, Granted, albeit it's very hard to get in with a publisher uh, historically, 
used to pay you up front, okay, for your work. And I think that's that's worth it. I, if you're a good author, if you write a great book, you should get something up front. But Kindle is eliminate or Amazon, I feel like, is eliminating your payday, your real payday. Okay, now, of course, I think you can you can kind of option not to be a part of this as an author. You don't have to be a part of Kindle Unlimited. But how long is that going to last? You know, if if you look into the 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 story, the case between Amazon and Hachette Publishing, you'll find out that really Amazon doesn't give a shit uh, about the author, and they don't even really necessarily care about the consumer. They, rightly or wrongly, just completely care about their bottom line. They have no concern about the actual art. And I don't see them with this in mind. I mean, I could see a point where they'd say, "Look, we won't publish you on Kindle if you don't take part in Kindle Unlimited." And then you're you're their slave at that point. Okay, they've become your employer. You are no longer a freelance author, which is what the original beauty of Kindle Unlimited is. So I don't think this is a good thing. I don't think this works. You know, I'm game for like what Netflix and and even Amazon Prime's doing with their own shows and all that stuff. Uh, You know, some of these subscription services uh, work really well. Maybe in the future, I'll talk more about subscription services because by and large, I think they're a bad idea. But this is something that's just not going to work. I, I don't I don't see it happening. Uh, and you never as an author, you should know you never want to go. Exposure should not come for free. And that's probably what Amazon's going to tell you. That is very amateur to think, oh, yeah, I just, I, that's fine. I just want to get, ex- I want to get exposure. I want to get exposure. No, get paid for everything you do. And Amazon is eliminating the ability for you to get paid for everything you do with Kindle Unlimited. Uh, so I do not recommend it. I don't recommend being a part of it. I recommend we really need to be building up another service besides Kindle, but that does have a lot of its features. We need to decentralize, decentralized publishing. I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech. Are you searching for your soulmate? Someone you can trust, who will never betray you, or cooperate with the NSA? Stop searching. With EasyDNS, you found a keeper. EasyDNS does it all. Domain names, web hosting, and managed WordPress hosting. EasyDNS stands up for your internet freedom. And with servers in Canada, they do not cooperate with the NSA. Go to EasyDNS.com. You'll love their services or get a full refund. They guarantee it. And they accept Bitcoin. That's EasyDNS.com. Hello, Mr. Sovereign. Brian Sovereign. And yours? Natalia. Care to play a game of roulette? I'd love to. Number and color? 69. Black. As you wish. Tech Roulette. It is time for Tech Roulette, where I cover the stories that get sent to me through the various channels available to Sovereign Tech listeners. Uh, of course, SovereignTechAriseUp.net is the email address. You can find me on BitMessage, RetroShare, Twitter. Take your pick. And yes, I am still on Google Plus at the moment, and I do check it even though I don't really mess around. I just kind of use it as a showcase for some of my work. I'm also on Liberty.me. I guess you can get in touch with me that way. I know some of my listeners have really done a lot of work with uh, getting Sovereign Tech's presence felt on Liberty.me, and I really appreciate that. I think I need to start posting my shows there uh, to to reach out to some of these people, but 
Anyway, you can send in a story to me. You get to control what I talk about. That's what Tech Roulette is all about. And this week, I'm going to get to something I wanted to talk about last week, but instead the, the entire or a good chunk of the show got hijacked by blockchain, hijacked by blockchain technology. Uh, and this has to do with, well, let's start reading the story and then we'll, we'll talk about where I think this is leading. From RT, electric aliens. I don't believe in aliens. (laughs) Not in this solar system anyway. Bacteria discovered that exist on pure energy. Microbiologists based in California have discovered bacteria that survive by eating pure electrons rather than food, bringing an entirely new method of existence to awareness and raising questions about possibilities for alien life. The electric bacteria, as they have been dubbed by the team that discovered them, take energy from rocks and metal by feasting directly on their electrons. The hair-like filaments the uh, the bacteria produce carry electrons between the cells and their environment. The biologists from the University of Southern California found that the new discovery joins more than 10 other different specific type of bacteria that also feed on electricity, although none in quite the same way. This is huge. What it means is that there's a whole part of the microbial world that we don't know about, Kenneth Nielsen of USC told New Scientist. Uh, Nielsen explained the process by which the bacteria function. You eat sugars that have excess electrons and you breathe in oxygen that willingly takes them, he said. Human cells break down the sugars in order to obtain the electrons, making the bacteria that only absorb the electrons that much more efficient. That's the way we make all our energy, and it's the same for every organism on this planet, Nielsen said. Electrons must flow in order for energy to be gained. Some of the bacteria even have the ability to make biocables, a kind of microbial collection of wires that can conduct electricity as as, as well as copper. They can conduct it as well as copper does, renowned for its high electrical conductivity. Such nanowires were first discovered in a separate study conducted by researchers at Aarhus University in Denmark. Their presence raises the possibility that one day bacteria could be used in making subsurface networks for people to use. Holy shit. Talk about a mesh networking solution. Tens of thousands of bacteria can join to form a cable that can carry electrons over several centimeters. The new scientist video on the subject points out, and there's a video link is in the show notes. Of course, at sovereigntech.com. just click on the episode. All your show notes are there along with all of the links. Uh, Nielsen and his team discovered the bacteria by taking ocean sediment and placing electrodes in it from the laboratory. As higher voltages were pumped into the water, the bacteria started to consume electrons from it. When a lower voltage was pumped into the water, the bacteria emitted electrons, making an electric current. The scientists carefully cut off all other possible nutrition sources for the bacteria. Nielsen compared their method of survival to a human attempting to power up by sticking their finger in a DC electric socket instead of eating. (laughs) Two of the most well-known bacteria have electrical properties already, including the marine bacteria uh, Shewanella and Geobacter. Hope I got those right. Some species of which can metabolize certain uh, collections of chemicals producing electrons in the process, leading some scientists to theorize that a sort of natural battery could be created using it. Last month at the Goldschmidt Geoscience Conference in Sacramento, California, results were presented. Nielsen's Ph.D. student Annette Rowe has identified some eight different kinds of the bacteria. NASA has also expressed interest in the dark energy biosphere, 
microorganisms lurking beneath the seabed because they survive on such little energy that their means of living could theoretically be used by other beings living in other areas of the solar system. If nothing is going to eat it or destroy it, then theoretically, we should be able to maintain that organism indefinitely. Uh, that's Yuri Gorby, a microbiologist at the, in Troy, New York, speculated. So this is pretty fascinating. And I actually have another story that I want to get to as well uh, that is related. So, okay, so essentially there's such far out. And actually, I got an email from a listener uh, this week who said that, you know, it kind of mentioned the same thing, that there's life at the bottom of the ocean that live off of so little energy, that live off of really things that you just... You just wouldn't think anything could possibly live off of uh, that. There may be other forms of complex life out there that just live on these properties, uh, you know, that, that live in the solar system. Now I'll touch on that for a minute because I already made the crack <laughs> uh, earlier in this segment that, you know, I don't believe that there are other aliens in the solar system. Uh, I, when I say that my, my more, my point is, is that there aren't aliens that are like traveling to earth. Uh, I am open to, and I guess you have to define complex life, right? For me, complex life is life that, you know, has real sentience that, uh, that, that you could communicate with, you know, I'm talking about life that, that we anticipate meeting like in science fiction films where you could have a conversation with it of some kind. Uh, and so I don't think anything like that, un unless maybe it were on Mars or wherever it really exists right now, but I'm certainly open to plenty of various forms of, you know, not in that case, not complex life, you know, maybe even some kind of animal life or microbial bacterial life, whatever that could exist in the, in this solar system, uh, and really all over the universe. Okay. As to where I think complex life itself is exceptionally uh, rare. I mean, really rare, not just rare in solar, not, not just for our solar system, but everywhere, I think is an, it is incredibly rare. And one of the things that bolsters that for me, and then I want to talk about the other aspect of this story. One of the things that bolsters that for me is there was a theory that came out this month about um, the fact or the, the theory, not the fact, the theory that we are the humans themselves are actually a hybrid species. We're not hybrids from from, uh, you know, from aliens, but we're the hybrid of a pig getting fucked by a monkey. By a chimp. And this is a pretty interesting theory. Uh, actually, the uh, the goddess of godlessness. I love that one. <laughs> Dr. Stephanie Murphy, she actually she read the paper on it and she thought it was genius and she agreed with a lot of what it had to say. And she's a, she's a biochemist. So, you know, we're talking about a PhD here. Okay. That's saying, yeah, this looks, you know, pretty, pretty solid. So if it takes, you know, not only all the, the, really the, <laughs> the rolling of the dice to some degree that it took for, you know, even microbial life, to come into being on this planet, but then for intelligent life to be able to survive and thrive only because of, you know, the, the happenstance chance of a chip fucking a chimp fucking a, uh, you know, a pig, then, wow. You know, I mean, what, what are the mathematical chances of this thing happening anywhere else, including the fact a planet's got to be in the Goldilocks zone. And we talked about, uh, last week, I think how a lot of these planets, 
you know, that they're saying are in the Goldilocks zone, they're not really there. In fact, they mean those planets might not even be actual planets. So, <laughs> so you, you have a real problem there. Uh, but moving on. Okay. With, with that's, that's the idea with complex life, but moving on, I want to talk about a different aspect. That's not the most interesting aspect of this story for me. The most interesting aspect of this is I talked, there was a few episodes back where I talked about transhumanism. Okay. I talked about how I don't understand why people are going more towards trying to find, you know, mechanical technological solutions to allowing humans to live longer or getting past diseases, whatever. And why they're not looking into organic biological technological solutions for that to where you are actually growing technology growing. I mean, like, you know, growing like you, like a weed grows, like, uh, you know, like, like any, any form of life grows. And this is what this story said to me is that that is now entirely possible. I mean, they even, they mentioned the, uh, the nano wire where you could run, you could, they talked about how you could create, uh, all kinds of things, natural batteries, uh, including the ability to communicate, you know, send communications over subsurface networks. Uh, I mean, all kinds of stuff that could be done with this. Okay. Because you can pass electrons through organically created material. And these bacteria, they, they just, they do it all automatically. They do it on their own. And I, so I think this is incredibly exciting. And I don't mean to get into like the whole fear mongering thing. I've mentioned this before, but the idea of EMPs, because let's face it, EMPs are absolutely real. Okay. Electromagnetic pulse weaponry is real and that will fry you know, pretty much anything silicon that, that will, that will, it, it's just, it's over as to where it would not affect these organisms. It would not affect this bacteria, which can pass electrons and can do it naturally. Talk about redundant systems. This is really exciting stuff. It doesn't get much more exciting. Now, you may ask, what if we can mechanically come up with a better idea to solve a problem that we have? Good luck with that. And to prove the point that that's not perhaps the most efficient way to go. The other story I wanted to bring up is that this is also from RT. First, synthetic biological leaf could allow humans to colonize space. That's right. In order for humans to live in outer space, they must have a steady supply of oxygen they can depend on. Now, instead of relying on plants that may not survive, they can use an artificial biological leaf designed by a London graduate student. Julian uh, Melchiori, a graduate student in innovation design engineering at the UK's Royal College of Art, created the synthetic leaf, which he called the Silk Leaf Project. The design was for an RCA course offered in collaboration with Tufts University Silk Lab in Massachusetts. Like the leaf from a real plant, the synthetic leaf uses photosynthesis to produce oxygen. Or fo I'm sorry, photosynthesis by absorbing light, water, and carbon dioxide. The artificial leaves feature chloroplast extracted extracted from actual plant cells that are suspended in a material made from silk protein. 
So when given access to light and water, they still produce oxygen, but they're better suited to surviving off our planet, Gizmodo reported. The protein-based material is is extracted directly from the silk fiber. It's used to stabilize organelles, organic molecules within a cell, including chloroplasts, within the material's matrix, Melchiori told. Uh, I have the first photosynthetic material that was working and breathing as a leaf does, he said. The man-made leaf is lighter than the real thing, but better suited to long-term life in space because scientists don't know if organic plants would survive and flourish outside our atmosphere the way humans would need them to. And if mankind is to colonize space, those living on another planet would need to produce their own O2 gas. So what if we could take these biological oxygen factories into space with us, but without all the land, sun, water, soil, and gravity that forests tend to require, CNET uh, ponders. This is the point where NASA and Elon Musk should probably start paying attention. The space agency is the designer's ideal target, in fact. Plants don't grow in zero gravity, Melchiori explained. NASA is researching different ways to produce oxygen for long-distance space journeys to let us live in space. The material could allow us to explore space much further than we can now. The design brings the natural efficiency of photosynthesis to a man-made material. The graduate student also sees his leaf being used for interior design or for the ventilation system in a large building. The material would serve as a filter for the outside air, bringing oxygenated air into the structure. Whoa. (laughs) Wow. So there you have it. What was the best way to solve this problem? What is the best way to possibly solve what is happening, you know, or how we can get, uh, you know, long-term air on long missions into space? And this is important because recently NASA, just this past week, announced that they are bringing back uh, Project Constellation. They are bringing back the, um, the Orion capsule module, the, the Orion spacecraft that they had talked about using, you know, that they were designing 10 years ago. This is important because they're considering using that for a Mars mission. Okay, how are we going to, you know, what are we going to do about air? What are we going to do about all this stuff? Here's your solution. Copy nature. Look to nature, see how nature does it, and then just make it work the same way. Bingo. And this isn't necessarily a new idea either. In fact, Carl Sagan theorized that if we were to ever colonize Mars that we would want to bring plants there, altered plants that, or, you know, de- designed plants, sort of like what uh, Melchiori did here, that are black instead of green. That way they would attract even more, uh, you know, they, they'd be even a, a, a more powerful photosynthetic uh, powerhouse, okay? Or that would allow for, uh, yeah, it, it would just allow for, for a lot more O2 to get out there. So this is real. I mean, so again, not necessarily a new idea, but it's finally designed and it was designed so well. Uh, This is really incredible. So consider this. Figuring out how to artificially, albeit copying natural processes, Artificially create photosynthesis, create energy, oxygen creation, all that stuff. And then you find out that there's bacteria that works very much like an electrical system that we would put into play anywhere to do anything. You're creating the recipe for the idea that, yes, 
we can create organic, in my opinion, this is a recipe for creating organic machines. Biological machines. Machines that are grown. Now, not my idea, not a new idea at all, uh, certainly something that's been toyed with in science fiction uh, a million times. Um, you have, of course, uh, Babylon 5 is a really popular example where the Vorlons actually grew their starships. They were living things. Uh, there, there's plenty of other examples out there where, where you have that. And I really think that's, that's the direction to go. You know, the, the solving everything mechanically, not, not a bad idea, of course. I mean, we wouldn't be where we are now if we didn't try it or if we didn't make that happen. But it is something that has, you know, I, so many people really, <laughs> it's, it's funny. People really don't consider just how incredible it is. I say this a lot, but just how incredible it is that your body is completely self-healing in a million ways. Not just from when you cut yourself and the scab goes over and then it, you know, turns back into skin. Not that, but I mean, even interior, all, all this stuff that, you know, we're just, there's these natural systems that allow for that to happen is mind-blowing. And there's nothing, I don't think there's anything more efficient. And I don't care if a robot can lift, you know, 2,000 pounds. At the end of the day, it sucks compared to the human ability to repair itself and to run on so, you know, I mean, yes, humans, I suppose, by comparison to a lot of other life, particularly the life at the bottom of the seabed or, you know, on the seabed, uh, you know, doesn't run on so much, but that really requires so little and is so easily renewable. It's energy source is so easily renewable that I think this is really where you can go. And again, with the transhumanism thing, if you can create, if you could grow Systems, you know, that, that could naturally attach. Now, you have to understand, because I'm talking about with transhumanism, I'm talking about taking a human brain and just slapping it into a new body, a new grown body, not an android, not, you know, not, not some, uh, not a robot, but into another human body. Granted, you have millions of connections that you would, that have to be, or thousands of whatever, that have to be connected for the human brain. And it all kind of has to connect the same. It all has to match up because it's been developed over a person's life. But I would think that that is so much easier to make happen than the idea that you are going to upload, you know, memory engrams that you're going to upload uh, everybody's thoughts and that somehow that would be the same person. I really, I, I don't believe that, that, that a person is just their brain. And I think there's some science to back that fact, that fact up. I really do. So this is the direction. If we are looking to live longer, if we're not going to do like Aubrey de Grey is trying to do, you know, ending aging through uh, fixing various, you know, biological issues that we have. If it's not that way, let's go this way. I mean, there's just, there's so much that, that bodies do and you can just, you can mimic it. You know, if you can mimic a leaf, granted, that's a that's a relatively simple system to copy by comparison. But if you can mimic a leaf, I think you can get to the point to very easily to where you could mimic. You know, a human body and everything that it does. You know, because maybe also you need to transplant not just the brain, maybe you need to transplant the heart. 
how is all that going to work? And the heart has an electromagnetic field that, you know, some theorize communicates with the brain. And maybe, you know, even communicates with others. Maybe. This is invigorating. This is exciting. This is proving that there are lots of directions that we could go with what we want to do as humans. Um, and in fact, honestly, I love the idea. Imagine this, you know, sub networks. Imagine, imagine organic RJ45, organic Ethernet that just kind of grows along the seabed and just naturally, you know, feeds off electrons. And can, I, I just, just picture how far all this could go. It's amazing. Now, we do have to consider, of course, that if we start using grown life, uh, that, you know, is this going to affect or, you know, grown machines as in living machines or living technology? Is this going to affect the biodiversity of the Earth? Maybe. What we're doing now certainly does. Uh, in fact, there's a story where, you know, you have these wind farms that exist out in the middle of oceans. Well, they're turning into natural or should I say artificial coral reefs and they are harming, uh, you know, the, the biodiversity of the area. They are harming the life uh, in that area by creating these really unnatural reef systems that would never be there. They could never possibly be there otherwise. And so that's something to consider. And, you know, I, I've gotten questions, uh, you know, important emails, listener emails that have asked me to talk about my thoughts on environmentalism because it's such a hot topic and taboo topic in a lot of anarchists and liberty circles. I need to do that. But this is, I just wanted to get it out there that guess what? Living machines are possible and we need to be looking in that direction. I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech. There's a lot of confusing information out there about Bitcoin mining. Customers have been burned by companies taking their money on pre-orders for Bitcoin mining equipment, only to receive their equipment late and miss out on opportunities to mine Bitcoins. But that doesn't mean Bitcoin mining is impossible. You just have to find an honest company to do business with. If you want to mine Bitcoins and you want to do it now, no pre-orders, no waiting. Look into the Antminer products from Bitmain. Their competitively priced Antminers are in stock and ship from the U.S. as soon as you pay. You could buy an Antminer today and be mining Bitcoins tomorrow. The Antminer line offers the best mining power per dollar currently available. 20% of the mining power in the Bitcoin network is contributed by Antminers. Not only that, but Bitmain is committed to support. You can get tech support and warranty service over the phone by calling 844-BITMAIN. For commercial accounts, they'll even travel to your data center to install your equipment. Get all the details at bitmaintech.com. That's bitmaintech.com. You're a lucky man, Mr. Sovereign. Not many win so well at the game of chance. That's because it's not a game of chance, Natalia. It's a game of choice. <laughs> game of choice. It is time for Game of Choice. And, uh, you know, I mentioned Babylon 5 in the last segment. Of course, when doesn't it get mentioned, right? Uh, <laughs> and... 
this week's game of choice, and of course, game of choice is where I talk about a game that uh, maybe needs a good replay, uh, maybe went under the radar because of the just the uh, deluge of AAA games that come out these days. Uh, or it's something that's on its way. And recently I've been talking about a lot of games that are kind of in development to keep an eye out for, uh, because you can help them out with the development. And one of those is actually a game that is very much inspired by Babylon five. Uh, of course, Babylon five, the TV show is the show about a space station. That is our last best hope for peace and Babylon five or in battle station is the name of this game. And it is all about you know, this, the station being the last best hope for humanity, not necessarily peace. Uh, I don't know a whole ton about the storyline, uh, that they haven't really like, like talked about it much. They're, they're developed, they're adding more to the page all the time. So, but this is what this is going to be. It's going to be a, a game that's like a FTL. I don't know if you've not free talk live, but faster than light. Uh, there's a, there's a very popular game called faster than light that's available on PC and iOS, or on iPad anyway, uh, it's a really, it's a great game where you essentially have to play out a scenario and you are in complete control of your starship. So they're going to do that. But in this case, they're going to really blow the idea up into where it's on a space station instead of a starship. And they do have a mini game that you can play and it's called same name. It's called battle station. You can go to battlestation.fi to find it too. Um, but there's a mini game that you can play on iOS and Android and PC, which I actually played a little bit of, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's a pretty simple game, but maybe it's giving you a hint as to what it's going to be like playing the full version of battle station, which will be, uh, coming out soon. So they're going to be releasing an early access version very soon. And it was pretty cool. I mean, even the mini game alone was a lot of fun. So, you know, that's great. I like the fact that when somebody announces they're going to come out with something, that they actually give you something that you can play and use right out of the gate instead of uh, saying, yeah, we're going to come out with this and we want your money, but we don't have anything to give you right now. Like uh, maybe some tech projects that are out there. <laughs> Ethereum. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, bad cough. Um, but anyway, yeah, uh, Battle Station it really looks like a lot of fun. And if you've ever played uh, faster than light, you'll, you'll know what I mean. It, it's that, that game is amazing. People will play it, you know, incessantly and it has total replayability value. And this one I hope will have the same. So, uh, you know, and, and I like the idea if there's going to be a really tight storyline, like maybe a more like in the mini game, there's, there's aliens that, that consistently attack you. Okay. So that's perhaps a hint into what you're going to be dealing with. Um, but if you're going to mix in a lot of Babylon five type, uh, storylines, or maybe have, uh, maybe still have an inter, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways you could go with this, but I think you have a recipe for success and you have the recipe for a really great game, uh, because faster than light, like it, it'd be really cool if you could launch like separate fighters, which you kind of can do with Fast and light, but if battle station goes bigger with that, to where you have other spaceships that you can control and pretty much just make that whole style of gameplay, a lot of very story driven and, you know, kind of micromanaging gameplay. If you can make that a lot bigger, I, I think that's going to be amazing. And that's what battle station is trying to do. And again, sprinkled in with a lot of the story elements that made Babylon five. So great. Awesome. Let's do this. So go to battlestation.fi and you can check it out. You can sign up for the early access and you can get links for the uh, you know for the mini game 
that you can start playing that I actually, I really enjoyed. Love getting something. Uh, and, and it's free, actually. The, the mini game is free. So check that out. I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech. For 90 seconds on sex with Dr. Paul. Fractures of the penis only seem to happen during sex, but fortunately, they're quite rare. Now, here is the fascinating part. In a recent study of 16 men who had fractured their penis, half of the men were having extramarital affairs when the injury occurred, and none of the fractures were caused by an angry wife. According to the study, only three of the men were having sex with their own spouse in their own bedroom when the injury happened. As a result, the sex was often rushed, aggressive, awkward, and it tended to occur in places like cars, elevators, offices, and public restrooms, or situations where the men were unable to protect their penis from a sudden downward thrust of their partner. Well, this makes sense, given that penis fractures tend to happen when the woman is on top. But it's so rare, I wouldn't worry about intercourse with a woman on top, unless you're cheating on your wife or doing it in an unusual place. You can only fracture a penis when it's erect and something slams against it with enough force to cause one of the cylinders inside of the penis to rupture or tear. A fractured penis will often make a cracking sound, followed by a rapid loss of erection, pain, swelling, and hemorrhage. The outcome is excellent if the penis is surgically repaired within a couple of hours. If you wait longer, the damage could be permanent. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. You are quite the man, Mr. Sovereign. Are you busy tonight? Natalia, if you'll excuse me, I uh, just received a very important email. Later then, Mr. Sovereign. Important email. It is time for Important Email, where I cover emails that get sent to me uh, via BitMessage, RetroShare, um, SovereignTechAtRiseUp.net, of course, the email address, via Twitter. Lots of get, And I've got, I have a ton of emails. I have a ton of listener emails to, to get through. I do read all of them. I don't always respond to a lot of them quickly enough, I think. Um, but at some point, I'll get to the point where I have, where I can respond directly to your emails uh, and if, of course, if it's something that's timely, let me know. I will try and help you in a timely fashion if I can. Uh, you know, if it's like a really important tech question, I do avail myself in that way. And then I'll talk about it on the show, uh, you know, at a future time. So, but this week, uh, we got a couple emails to get through. And the first one is interesting. The, I had mentioned, I believe it when I, I believe it was when I was talking about my military service uh, I hate to call it that a service <laughs> during my military career. I also hate to call it a career when I was talking about that, that I mentioned there were animals that I would refuse to kill. Um, and I've already gone. I mean, hell, I was talking about living machines a bit ago, so I've already gone off the deep end in this episode. <laughs> so I might as well go all the way. Right. And <laughs> and so a person actually asked what you know, what what is that list of animals? I had mentioned that I had a list of them that I wouldn't kill. And he was curious what those were. Uh, and so I will give you the list of animals that I would not uh, kill. And that includes dolphins. I think a lot of people 
won't be shocked by that. I, I actually did an entire special, uh, Sovereign Tech special about dolphins and that I theorize that they are non-human persons. Uh, of course, countries like India have already laid it out that they are non-human persons and are protected by law. Um, not that I want to protect anybody by law because the law doesn't protect shit, but just putting that out there that I'm not unique in that thought. Uh, so, yeah, uh, dolphins, you know, whales, elephants, various forms of primates. I would definitely, you know, put put on the list of, of creatures that, you know, the list of creatures that I would not kill. Uh, because, I mean, maybe they are, you know, like elephants experience PTSD. Do you know that? And if you can experience PTSD, I, I, <laughs> I mean... You know, what, how, how is that not, let me, let me separate what I define as animal and non-human person. An animal is a creature that acts purely upon instinct, does not, cannot go against those instincts, does not have, uh, the, the perception of, or the idea of will does not have the, uh, you know, doesn't have willpower. Like it can only act on, on instinct, like how, how some animals will just bite their way out of a trap you know, bite their own leg, chew their own leg off or whatever. Uh, As to where, you know, a person would try and find a way to save its leg. Okay. That's just a really basic example and maybe not even the best one. So that, that's, that's how I differentiate, you know, maybe, maybe that's how I would differentiate complex life that I mentioned earlier from animal life. Or other, you know, what other form of life you want to you want to contemplate? Uh, there is some some people are still studying, like octopi and squid. You know, uh, you know, cetaceans. They uh, people are still studying them because their form of life is just so drastically different from us that it's difficult to, you know, to really nail down whether or not they can they they think. Or that they have the ideas of consent, etc. Uh, so I probably steer clear of of cetaceans as well. But that that is that is pretty much the short list is you know dolphins, whales, elephants, uh, and some primates. Uh, and it, you know it's, it's interesting with with primates. Um, it you got to be careful because there's a lot of researchers that will study primates particularly. And they will project a lot of things onto them. Now, this can happen all over the place with animal intelligence, no doubt about it. But I think there's a lot of cases where it's pretty clear what's going on, and it's pretty clear that that animal is not acting upon instinct. Uh, In fact, you know, a lot of people bring up the idea because now I'm not saying any of these creatures are inherently noble either, uh, because I've brought up the dolphin thing in the past and people just start freaking out saying, holy shit, you want to protect the dolphins? Dolphins are evil. They rape and say, wait, 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 they rape. Define rape. Oh, rape is where there's a lack of consent. So you're saying the dolphin has to consent. So isn't consent an an intellectual act? Not instinct, but an intellectual act. Oh, I see. So that that's that's uh, kind of a short and sweet version of animal. My thoughts on animal intelligence. Uh, really great science fiction series. While we're mentioning science fiction series, is the Uplift series by David Brin, which talks about humanity helping uh, a lot of these more 
uh, shall we say, advanced animals, creatures getting to that next stage of evolution. And, uh, and it's really a, a great read. Definitely. I, I won't deny that it, it did formulate some of my thoughts because I read those when I was pretty young uh, on these on these ideas. So and it does raise the question of, you know, again, I mentioned biodiversity earlier. It does raise the question of, you know, is humanity in what it does interfering with the evolution of other species? Uh, maybe. In fact, we talked about the living machines. Would creating living machines introduce new harmful elements into the ecology? You know, uh, would would they do more harm than good? Maybe. But then, you know, does laying down steel and farming and agriculture and all that stuff do even more harm? Maybe. Moving on. This is a, an email, a listener email, an important email that uh, I had teased a couple episodes back that was sent into the show. Uh, and it's a very, very vulnerable email, and I really appreciate um, I get quite a few of those, and I, I, I haven't gotten to all of them, but uh, I really appreciate listeners wanting to share such, uh, such deep parts of their life uh, with me. It's, it's an honor. Um, and I, I want to, I'll go ahead and start reading. Uh, thank you for another fantastic episode of Sovereign Tech. Uh, I love it when Stephanie joins you. She's fantastic. Yeah, she <laughs> is. She not. <laughs> uh, I wanted to comment on the, or actually, she said she's especially, or he or she uh, is especially enjoying the conversations about what Paleolithic life may have been like. It's really fascinating. Glad you enjoyed that. We'll be talking about that more uh, in the future. I wanted to comment on the important email section of episode eighty. Specifically, the valuing of human life. I've always had a really difficult time valuing my own life, and thus occasionally the lives of others. I have a much easier time seeing other people's value, but as far as myself, I often feel no better than the dirt I will eventually become after I die. You and Stephanie both sound like really wonderful, happy people who highly value your lives and others' lives. Is this something that comes naturally to you, and do you have any advice for those of us who may have a hard time seeing the forest for the trees? Or in this case, seeing myself as anything more than just one of the 7 billion people on Earth. Uh, I'd also like to say that if you don't value human life, having a gun is a really bad idea. Uh, yeah, great point. <laughs> that if you don't have this really, you know, intrinsic respect of, of human life, that, um, yeah, you, you really shouldn't be having anything that's lethal. You really shouldn't have control of anything that's lethal. And of course, I, I think it's pretty clear that, that governments don't have the, a proper valuation of human life. Um, to answer the question, this is a really deep question. And do I have any advice on how to, how to value uh, human life or how to value yourself? Well, it's important that I think if you can value other people's lives, then you really have the key for valuing your own. You value other people's lives because perhaps you recognize that they, they contribute something to the grand play of life. All the world is a stage, right? <laughs> That's Shakespeare, or should I say Francis Bacon? Whoops. And that, that's really key in that you can recognize that you also contribute something. And contributing, you know, we're not humans. We're, our, our value should not be based upon how hard we work or 
how much, you know, how much we offer to other people, how much we give to other people or whichever. Uh, it is really all about you and that's okay. And I think this is the problem. I think this is where some of these thoughts come from an emailer, please. It's not an insult. Um, I've, I've wrestled with this. Uh, lots of people have wrestled with this. Okay. But I think what society tells us is that there is more to life than you, that there is, that there's an altruism then, or that there's a couple things here, but you know, you know what your life, the point of life, and this is I perhaps the best advice I can give. The point of life is for you to be happy. Okay. And in recognizing that in feeling, especially if you can respect others, then you know how it feels to recognize that another person's life, another person's happiness, if life is ha if if life's purpose is to be happy, life is happiness. If you can recognize the value in another person being happy, you can recognize why not in interfering with someone else's happiness is happiness for you. You see what I'm saying? Uh, it's some want to call it the golden rule, you know, saying that Jesus quoted it, you know, uh, do unto others as you'd have done unto you. Uh, I think it's a great rule. Jesus didn't create it. Actually, a guy named Publius Cyrus created it about a hundred years before Jesus ever said it. And it was very popular in the Roman empire, but it's the truth. I agree. It is the truth. And it, you know, it may be one of the, one of the singular laws. Okay. And so if you really, if you can find, you know, the value in other people's lives, I think you, you can definitely fall, find it within yourself. And, you know, I, so there's, there's that aspect of it. Okay. That society keeps telling us that we need to live for other people. Oh, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. You, you live for you. Okay. And you will find, I think very quickly that your happiness can often come from happiness of others. But keep in mind at the core of that is your happiness, not sacrificing yourself for other people's happiness, but that you are intrinsically serving your own, that you are intrinsic, intrinsically serving you enlightened self-interest is what they used to call it. So in a roundabout way, I think if you appreciate what other people do, okay, if you, if you see their value, you are inherently valuing your own happiness, whether you kind of recognize it or not. Now, the other aspect of this is that we are raised in, in a society also, or we are often raised by parents that can do a shit job of, of letting you know just how special you are. They can, they will ignore you. They will not be your steward. They're pro uh, the proper steward that you deserve. And I think this, this leads to a lot of it. Okay. Um, now I'm not as extreme as, as some, uh, liberty minded people who recommend you leave your parents or things like that, but do recognize that maybe you didn't get the love from the most important people or the most, uh, 
yeah, yeah, the most important people in your life growing up and that that may instill in you perhaps a, a lack of specialness that is rightfully yours. And so if you can get at the heart of where, why don't I feel so special? If you can find out where that came from, you can start to work, work it out. Okay. And find out, you know, why that is. But then you find out once you can pinpoint where the start of those feelings come from, you find, I think you find out that, wait a minute, this is all bullshit and lies. I am really special. I do add to the human condition, to the universe, even if it's with just a smile. So, and I want to get into a third aspect also, and this is a huge societal problem that I kind of mentioned a minute ago, but that we are so defined by our work. You know, so often when people come up to us, they ask, well, what do you do? That's the, literally the first question that people will ask. Now, I have wrestled with stopping from doing that because I'm so conditioned to do it as well. Okay. Uh, that doesn't matter. Now, by and large, it really doesn't matter, like, because that's that's forcing upon you a hierarchy that, oh, you work in fast food. Well, yeah, you can't really know a whole hell of a lot, can you? Which is crazy because I've known in my life, I've known surfers who can explain quantum physics better than Neil deGrasse Tyson. And who are a hell of a lot smarter than most scientists out there. Not that we need to necessarily gauge people by their, uh, you know, accessibility to knowledge that's in their head. But I hope you see my point is that you have a society working against you to keep to make you feel like you're just a cog in the machine. But once you recognize that, once you see that that's what's being pushed on you, you absolutely have value because suddenly you are part of of the thing that is going to bring happiness to so many people, you are suddenly the person with the answers, with the keys to actual happiness, which comes from human freedom. So I want to, you know, I want to read a poem to you that was actually really inspirational to me growing up uh, that may have had a part in this. And so pardon me with the cliche and uh, cheesiness, but really I think this is pretty powerful. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. It's not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we light, let our own lights shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And so when you figure out all these ideas out, you know, ideas like anarchy, or just, you know, freedom in general, however you want to define it. You really become, I mean, you, you become so special and you really do help so many people and you become so different. You separate yourself from the pack for the very first time in reality. You become something amazing. And then other people see it. Consciously or unconsciously, other people see it. 
and you suddenly give them the permission to be something amazing. It's a shame. It is an absolute shame that society keeps pushing on us that we're nothing, that we're just a number. And please, you know, people are going to say, well, in public school, they say everybody's special, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 they don't. Public school is a prison system that pushes you to act like everybody else. It's double speak in public school. There, it's just, it's the same shit telling you that you are not special, even though at the same time they're saying that you are. But you really are special. And it's too bad, like I said, that society doesn't give you the permission to think that way. But then what do we do? Well, we're anarchists. We don't ask for permission. If we have to, we'll ask for forgiveness, but we don't ask for permission. So go ahead. Be happy. It's all right. And don't think of yourself as like being like everybody else. You're here. You're listening to this. Honestly, in my book, that makes you a very unique and rare human being. So thank you so much for the email. Uh, I hope that helped. If anybody thinks I was way off base, send me an email, SovereignTech at RiseUp.net. But for me, it's the truth. And if you want my advice as to what is the core of happiness, there it is. Be you. Be amazing. It's all right. I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech. Hey, everybody. It's Stephanie. I am the Sovereign Tech producer. But did you know I am also a voiceover artist? Yes, it's true. I make audiobooks, commercials for your business. I narrate explainer videos pretty much any audio project that you can think of, I'm probably willing to work on it or I have worked on it in the past. And if you want to hear some samples of my previous work, or you want to find out a little bit more about what I do, then I encourage you to check out my voiceover website, which is smvoice.info, smvoice.info. Now back to Sovereign Tech. Agent Sovereign, go to this webpage and follow... What kind of webpage is this? Is that Natalia? I better go to the website of the week. It is time for website of the week, where I cover a website that's uh, useful, sometimes terrible, sometimes fun, sometimes pointless. It can be just about anything on the web. But uh, this is a really, uh, this was actually sent to me by the, the incomparable Paige Peterson. Uh, who I have had, I've had the great honor of having her in this very studio on the show. It was uh, just wonderful. And this is from the EFF. Now, if you didn't know, the EFF does have a, a blog. It's called the Deep Links blog. And they are starting kind of a, a, a new addition to the blog. Okay. And of course, you know, it's kind of a long, uh, long URL. So you can go to the show notes. There's a goo.gul link available there so that you can check this out and then you can follow it from there on. Uh, and it's introducing EFF's stupid patent of the month. <laughs> this is, I mean, you're in for, for a riotous read. I, I assure you it, it is funny as hell. Um, so I'm, I'm going to read a little bit about the, about the blog, just so you know, uh, here at EFF, we see a lot of stupid patents. 
There was the patent on scan to email and the patent on bilateral and multilateral decision making. There are so many stupid patents that Mark Cuban endowed a charity FF dedicated to eliminating them. We wish we could catalog them all, but with tens of thousands of low-quality software patents issuing every year, we don't have the time or the resources to undertake the task. But in an effort to highlight the problem of stupid patents, we're introducing a new series, Stupid Patent of the Month, featuring spectacularly dumb patents that have been recently issued or asserted. With this series, we hope to illustrate by example just how badly reform is needed at the patent office, in court, and in Congress. And boy, I couldn't agree more. So kudos to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, okay, for being able to highlight some of these, because especially in the tech world, well, I mean, I guess that's where all patents uh, really apply. Uh, In the modern tech world, it's insane. Uh, You know, I've mentioned in the past that actually my Galaxy Nexus phone, in fact, the reason I got the Galaxy Nexus phone was because for two weeks, it was banned in the United States. You could not own a judge said a judge in California said you cannot own a Galaxy Nexus or that they can't be sold, I should say, more accurately. And so I was like, well, I got to have that phone, you know, and it was all between Apple and Samsung and Google. You know, it was this big patent war, uh, just ridiculous. So no doubt about it. Reform needs to be made. And so if we can highlight just how stupid some of these patents are that 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 go through, uh, <laughs> I think that's handy. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the first one here that they did. A uh, U.S. patent number 8,762,173 titled Method and Apparatus for Indirect Medical Consultation. This patent issued on June 24th, 2014 uh, and dates back to an application filed in November 2007. And what was the novel, non-obvious, deserving of patent protection invention? Here is a claim. Here is claim one in a nutshell. Take a telephone call from a patient, record patient into a patient file, send patient information to a doctor, ask the doctor if she wants to talk to the patient, call the patient back and transfer the call to the doctor, record the call, add the recorded call to the patient file and send a doctor, and do steps A through F with a computer. There it is. That's, that's the key. That's the patent. This is a stupid patent. This is a patent on a doctor's computer secretary. Uh, or put another way, intermediated communications with the computer. In fact, we don't see much difference between this patent and the patent invalidated by the Supreme Court in Alice Corp versus CLS Bank, which claimed the abstract idea of intermediated settlement with a computer. So this is incredibly abstract, but it's really the whole patent is on the idea that you do a medical service, a service that's existed for probably a good hundred years with a secretary, nurse, whatever, and the doctor. And but this in this case, see, you're putting it into a computer. So this needs to get patented. And that means that as soon, you know, whoever files this patent and, and and it gets accepted and it did get accepted then suddenly you could sue every doctor's office that pretty much takes a patient's information and puts it into a computer. You're telling me patent reform isn't needed? Well, it needs to just go away, frankly. In fact, if there was a war going on, it would have gone away. Uh, There's the great case of during uh, World War I where airplanes were new to the game and the Wright brothers were claiming patents saying, no, no, we own airplanes. You can't just go make your own. And it held up the entire war effort. So suddenly the U.S. said, yeah, these patents, nope, no more patents. At least until the war was over. 
Anyway, I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech. You can send me stories about stupid patents. I'd love to read them here. Hey, look! Got an energy spike. Hold on! Launch. Bombing the Narn back to the Stone Age wasn't enough for you? Then we heard it. The sound of something terrible being born. This is madness! Station 3 to Commander Ivanova. Centauri have launched a full-scale assault. Time has come and gone! It's our turn now! Two million tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. A world where empires rise and fall. Where dreams are born and die. Where war and hatred are challenged by love and faith. In the third age of mankind, an age plagued by an evil empire that seeks to destroy humanity. It is our last, best hope for peace, for victory, for freedom. It is Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. I don't know if I can get us away from that helicopter. Don't you have a gun? Oh, there's never a need for lethal force. I'll handle this. How did you do that? We'll be fine. A quick hack solves everything. Hack, sack. It is time for HackSec, where we talk hackers and security. And this week, kind of got a, a really overarching theme to discuss. Um, cloud, the you know, cloud computing, cloud storage, that wonderful word cloud, which pretty much just means put it on the internet, not on your computer, is seemingly ubiquitous these days. It's everywhere, right? Uh, everybody's using it. Hell, I use it. Um, I use, uh, in fact, you know, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show in the past, but um, I have uh, I've been kindly given uh, an Office 365 account. And that account comes with one terabyte of storage out of the gate. You know, it's like 10 bucks a month and you get one terabyte of storage and then you get all the latest updates to Office and you get to use Office you know, Microsoft Office pretty indefinitely. Um, I also use Google Drive, and of course I got various offers of that because I have a Chromebook, etc. cetera. Uh, and so cloud storage is out there, and a lot of people are using Dropbox and whichever. Now, from a security aspect, it's pretty easy to say uh, these systems aren't secure at all. And in fact, you're just giving, you know, <laughs> you're just giving a lot of crackers a central point of failure to attack to get access to your information. And that's something that has happened uh, you know, years ago, there were Go entire Google Docs accounts uh, that were uh, cracked into and information taken. Uh, so it's a pretty serious issue. Now, there's some companies that have come out that have tried to do end to end encryption for what you put up on, you know, on, on Google Drive or whichever. There's a box cryptor, which is closed source. Make no mistake. It's closed source. But uh, at the same time, it's you know, it looks like they're they're really doing the encryption right um, and it, it offers a service that maybe people are interested in. And there, again, there's other companies that, that offer that as well, but there's another problem to cloud storage as far as security that may need to be considered. And a very unfortunate thing happened 
to a, uh, a gentleman. And it's this is from Business Insider, the story I'm about to read. And man claims Dropbox quietly deleted more than 8,000 of his personal files. Uh, Jan Kern, I, I hope I got that right, co-founder and CTO at photography software platform Virtual Rig Studio, has been using Dropbox since 2009. After using the service for about five years, Kern has come across one of the most terrifying stomach-churning scenarios one could imagine when relying on cloud storage. More than 8,000 of his personal files had mysteriously disappeared. To be exact, 8,343 of his files were missing. Kern detailed his experience on Medium, complete with his entire correspondence with Dropbox, discussing the problem. In his post, Kern writes that he had decided to use Dropbox Selective Sync feature when the hard drive in his laptop was running low on space. Selective Sync allows you to manually choose from which fo- choose which folders from Dropbox you'd like to sync with your computer. Kern decided to use Dropbox as the sole storage space for a large amount of his files. He writes that he unchecked a bunch of folders using Dropbox Selective Sync tool, meaning that these unchecked folders would only live in Dropbox, not on his computer. After that, the Dropbox client froze and didn't show any sign of life for a couple of minutes, so I decided to kill it and restart again, Kern wrote. He then tried to sync them one by one since the folders were so large. He thought the process had worked out perfectly. The folders had disappeared from his local storage, but were still available on Dropbox. It wasn't until about two months later he realized that he was missing a giant chunk of his work and personal files. After contacting Dropbox, Kern came to the conclusion that his mysterious deletion has to do with the way Dropbox Selective Sync feature works. According to Kern, Dropbox reportedly deletes these files from your local storage before it tells its servers about the changes you made to your Selective Sync settings. So if Dropbox crashes while it's syncing your files, the files can be at risk of permanent deletion. When the client restarts, it only sees the files that have yet to be synced before the crash occurred. Dropbox is only able to recover your deleted files within 30 days. In Kern's case, it had been more than 60 days by the time he realized his files were gone. It's important to note that these kinds of situations can be avoided by actively backing up your work, meaning you should store important files in several safe places to avoid losing them. Uh, and then there's a, you know, what, what Dropbox had, uh, had said to, to Kern about it. And you can read that in the show notes. Um, this, is, this is, I mean, Okay, obviously Dropbox allows for 30 days of data retention, which I would see considering, you know, what it takes to run servers and all, you know, so many billions of people's data, uh, that that's probably pretty generous for them to even offer that. Uh, I'm not going to say Dropbox is at fault here. Um, And, you know, and Kern, yeah, I agree. He really, (laughs) you shouldn't just have one backup of everything you've got. You know, you, you want to you want to have as many as you can, uh, be it on, you know, some kind of local storage. I mean, two terabyte drives are really cheap. <laughs> you know, a hundred dollars for some serious peace of mind is a great thing. And then to have, you know, Google Drive or uh, you know, OneDrive take your pick of the service or Dropbox, I guess. And uh, you know, that that way you're everything's really backed up. But it's interesting, it really shines a light on the problem of servers and of the problem of cloud storage in general, shit can happen. And if, and if shit is centralized, when it happens, there's nothing you can do about it. There's no going back. Okay. When you have a central point of failure, 
when that central, you know, uh, central point of failure fails, you're screwed. Like Kern is 8,000 files gone. Oof. So this is certainly a case where, boy, I wish MadeSafe was out there, right? Because <laughs> MadeSafe just kind of leaves it up there. As far as I know, there's no pruning system inside of MadeSafe. Uh, you know, if you're doing uh, cloud storage of a sort. And yeah, I mean, that I, yeah, again, I really, I wish that existed. This just shows how crazy servers are. But it brings up another thing, and that is that our reliance on cloud storage, what an act of faith that is. That, yeah, everything will be fine up there. There's enough retention. No, actually, come to find out, there's a limit on that retention. And I'm sure Google is a little different. Okay. And if you think that they're going to go to, you know, go to toe for you, you little person, maybe a big company, they try and rescue it somehow. Uh, no, I'm sorry. And you're, I'm being facetious. You're not a little person, but in their eyes. So I think this really hits home the importance of what I call hashtag go local. Okay, it's kind of like what a lot of the the hippies love you, hippies, uh, what they talk about with, you know, buying like local food and, and all that stuff. I think local storage is incredibly important and it's not expensive to do. I think cloud storage was attractive to a lot of people because of its ability to share uh, and its ability to um, really uh, you know, very inexpensively in comparison to the time, back up quite a bit of things. But that's not the case anymore. I mean, now, you know, I mean, I have a, okay, I can fill up two terabytes easy, but you can't imagine how many, how much gigabytes of data that I have collected over the decades. Okay. So I am an extreme case. The average person I'm sure a one terabyte drive, which can be had for 50 bucks, would do just fine. Buy two of them. Okay. Or go set up your own cloud with, guess what system? Own cloud. <laughs> and it's not hard. It's getting easier all the time. Own cloud is really getting very, very popular uh, because I think people realize uh, that these kinds of things, you know, are happening. So what's the moral of the story here? Well, the more the moral is take control of your own data. But I think this leads to a much larger discussion that I kind of hinted at in the first segment of the show. And that is, you know, I, maybe maybe you're not like me. Everybody's different. Everybody has different reasons to want to back up various data. But, you know, I watch like like let's just take TV shows. The TV shows I actually like, you know, Blake Seven, Buck Rogers, the original Battlestar Galactica, Babylon Fives, and, you know, movies, Star Wars, all that good stuff. Okay, the, the things I like, I actually watch them when I have the time over and over again because they're that good. It's not just one shot. I mean, but just consider if Netflix went down or went out of business. Contemplate that. What are you going to do? How are you going to get access to all that stuff? Maybe you could back it all up. Maybe, you know, download it or, or purchase it or whatever. Uh, I mean, and this is a big issue with a lot of these services is also that you are purchasing into something that you actually have no control over if the business no longer exists. 
that's something to consider. You know, I mean, this is a problem with DRM, right? So, I mean, I'm, I don't want to get into that side tangent uh, about that, but I just want to make the case that for many reasons, not just, uh, you know, perhaps a lack of encryption that gets offered with most of these cloud storage services, but just in the case that, yeah, I mean, you are trusting someone else with things that are so important and, you know, so important to you. So consider this a warning. And uh, this is another reason. I mean, j just picture this happening, you know, to the big Internet. And you could say, well, that's a disaster scenario. That's like nuclear holocaust occurring. None of that's ever going to happen. You sure? It's good to decentralize everything. It's good to break it all up. All right. And part one of the first aspects of that, I think, is to take control of your own data so that way things like this can't happen because that's all it took especially i mean this really makes a great case for for separate hard drives that's all it took was for you know the the software to go bad and or you know to freeze up and you just he had to exit and cancel it and i mean who knows what happened what happens if your computer dies in the middle of uploading some really important stuff and you had it set to where it does not save to the cloud go ahead and save it to the cloud too you know as long as it's something you're not worried about getting looked at sure but let's consider how inexpensive it is to do local storage now and to have multiple backups of these things. Uh, I do, you know, please do not trust the cloud. Do not, because this kind of stuff will happen. Anyway, I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech. Hey, everybody. I really appreciate all of you that listen to Sovereign Tech. I hope you have as much fun listening to the show as I do making it. And hey, if you have a good time listening or learn something from listening, you can donate to the show. Just look in the show notes at SovereignTech.com. There you'll see uh, addresses for Bitcoin, Blackcoin, Next, Litecoin, whole slew of ways to donate to the show. And believe me, I'm not going to complain if you only send two millibits or what equates to two dollars unlike some people but you know also you can donate via paypal using the affiliate links on the left hand side of sovereigntech.com and oh yes please feel free to use those affiliate links you can also help the show by circling me on google plus following me on twitter or following sovereign tech on soundcloud anything you can do to help believe me it helps so i love all of you and thank you so much for listening now let's get back to more sovereign tech Well, looks like we made it out of the country. Good driving. Let's find some place to relax. Somewhere with a nice big bed, I think. Let me pull up an app. Sounds good to me. Software of the Week. It is time for Software of the Week, where I cover software that may be useful, maybe it's terrible, or, you know, maybe it's just ridiculous. <laughs> Like, I thought Flappy Birds was ridiculous, but now it's back. Uh, anyway, that's not what I want to talk about. I do want to talk about actually what we were just talking about in that, you know, a lot of these cloud services to back up your, you know, various information, sometimes very important stuff, uh, is not encrypted most of the time. And it has, and these companies have zero concern for your privacy. They really do. Uh, most of them, anyway, have very, you know, have no concern for your privacy. But a company that does have concern for your privacy and does want to help you back things up 
is Open Whisper Systems, which we opened up the show with talking about. And they have an app uh, for, for Android that's called Flock. And this is great. I mean, this is really cool. What it is, all it does is it backs up encrypted and stores it so that you can access it on, on other devices, okay? Your calendar data and your your contact, your contacts, which if you're, you know, a business person, not even a business person, this is huge. This is a great app to have because it really... I, I, it's, it's, it's amazing just how important your contact info, you know, your contacts uh, file is. Now I recommend, of course, backing that up locally as well by maybe if, you know, if, if it's through Gmail to download the CSV file or whichever file and keep a, you know, a personal backup of all that, but to have a, a backup that you, that is cloud stored and encrypted at that way better than what anybody else is doing. Cause it's encrypted. Like I say, uh, and to be able to access that quickly on whatever device you happen to bounce around to is a pretty cool feature. And it's being done right. I mean, Open Whisper Systems, you know, all their stuff, again, open source, they make it all, you know, they make it all happen. They're doing it right. Okay, so Flock is is a great app for that. And like I say, your contacts uh, information is so important because how many people today rem- remember telephone numbers? They don't. You know, nobody does. Nobody, nobody puts that stuff in their head anymore. Well, okay. Yes. I'm sure there's some people out there that do, but by and large, a lot of people don't. And so this will back up, not just your telephone numbers, but I mean, your email contacts, all of your contact information, which is incredibly important. And again, it is encrypted. You can, you can do it all with a BS account. So if you're concerned about somebody, you know, looking for trying to hack into your files, into your contact information and your calendar information via your, you know, your normal email address that you use or your telephone number, you can back all this stuff up with just with, with a, a BS flock account. And then nobody knows, and it's, you know, decentralized and separated. So this is a really cool thing. This is where, if you're going to do cloud storage, this is how you do it. This is cloud storage done right. Okay. Uh, I mean, we were just, we just got done talking about a lot of cloud storage problems, but this is not one of them. So, (laughs) and of course, like I said, do back it up locally as well. uh, And Flock will even help you out with that. uh, Or there's other ways to to go about it. it. It's it's one of those things where I, I guess I wonder, and you can email me and tell me about it. it you know, on a personal level, like I, I do sales for free talk live. Okay. I do advertising sales. And so I don't really like I, my contact info is just maybe some of the most important uh, data that I have anywhere. So this was really huge when I found out about it. Um, but on a personal level, maybe this is something that, that, you know, doesn't mean anything to you. You can email me and tell me about that. Uh, or if you feel that there is, you know, an issue with this sort of thing, but I don't think so. I I think this is a a really important service. Now I wish that they would allow for some other kind of backup services like this. There are, there are some services that allow for the backup of pictures that are on a phone as well that are encrypted out there. I really wish I'm hoping that flock will expand more on that. And this will be part of, I mentioned in the first segment of the show, I talked about signal which is pretty much this entire encryption suite. As far as I understand it, Flock will be a part of that as well. And so then you have this communications platform that is decentralized as much as it can be for what it's doing and is completely encrypted. 
uh, and to some degree can, tra- can travel with you. This is huge. Okay, because I think that's what a lot of people would say. It's like, well, so what? If Tech Secure and Redphone work so well, you know, if, if I lose if I lose my phone or whatever device they had all that info on, it's all over. I don't have my contact info from Google. Wrong. Open Whisper Systems has you covered <laughs> on that aspect. So they really thought this out, and I think this is a pretty integral part of that entire signal suite, uh, encryption communication suite that they will be developing. Uh, so kudos to Open Whisper Systems. And uh, it is a totally free app. You can try it out now. I've already messed with it. It's uh, very mature for, for being, you know, relatively new in what it does. Uh, I don't know of any other service that quite does what this does. But anyway, I, I was going to say, it'd be nice if they'd also back up pictures in, in the future. But of course, that would take a ton of storage space. But I wonder if that isn't coming uh, at some point. Because it, it can store... It will store the pictures of, that's in your contact info if you ascribe a picture to it. So it really backs up at all. There's nothing quite like it. So check it out. Uh, link is in the show notes for Flock from Open Whisper Systems. I'll be back with more as Sovereign Tech. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. Oh, Oh, Natalia. Oh, Oh, it feels so good. I'm so close. I know what you need. The Climax. It is time for the climax. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, this is the part of the show where pretty much I talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about. Uh, and I was debating on whether th- this week what I want to talk about, I was de- really debating heavy on whether or not I was going to talk about it so soon because this is such a new release. Uh, I mean, yes, you could download a cam of it uh, on a torrent site. Um or, you know, maybe you haven't even had the chance to get to theaters to catch it. But this is something I really wanted to see. And what it is, it's Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Now, I am a huge fan of the Planet of the Apes movies. Uh, I had the honor of meeting Roddy McDowell, uh, who was famous for playing parts in pretty much anything that was Planet of the Apes up until his death. Uh, he also hosted the, whenever the sci-fi channel, back when the sci-fi channel was cool, he would, um, you know, he would host the, the, the apes week where they would, you know, show all the planet of the apes movies and they'd even show some of the cartoon or the TV series, the 76 TV series. Yes, folks, planet of the apes was so big of a franchise. It actually had its own TV series and a cartoon series back in the day. <laughs> uh, and, uh, most people don't even know that. So uh, I'm a huge fan. I enjoyed, I, and I also, I, I enjoyed all five movies in the original series. Uh, I very much enjoyed um, the 2001 movie with, uh, that Tim Burton made, even though, damn, was that a weird ending for a movie, right? <laughs> Wasn't it? I, I mean, it, um, in, in the 2001 Planet of the Apes, okay, it ends off, I don't want to necessarily give it a, well, whatever. I'm spoiling everything. So spoiler alert, everybody. Spoiler alert. Uh, in, in, in the 2001 remake of Planet of the Apes, 
at the ending of it, you know, the, the astronaut Mark Wahlberg's character ends up um, back on earth, but then, you know, and, and he, he ends up like in Washington DC and there he sees Abraham Lincoln, but Abraham Lincoln has the face of an ape. And then all these cops show up and all these people show up and they're all apes. And it's like, Oh, uh, how did this happen? Cause he ends up back on earth at a time uh, that was that was fitting. And the answer to that actually comes from if you bought the two disc special edition of Planet, the DVD of Planet of the Apes, the 2001 version, you will see there's an insert in there. This is the only way you actually get the answer to the movie. OK, and in that it gives you that answer. And if you want the answer to it, you're going to have to email me because I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> uh, so going on. um, it was a shock, I think, a few years ago when they said, yeah, we're going to make another Planet of the Apes and it's just going to be like a, you know, a, a prequel and it's going to be a complete, you know, remake, a reimagining again, even though we even just a few years ago, that being 2001 comparing, you know, 2000, I think it was a 2010 when Rise of Planet of the Apes come out, came out um, that it was kind of shocking. Wow, you're already doing another remake. What the fuck? And but Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which is what I'm talking about. Uh, is the sequel to Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And Rise of the Planet of the Apes was great. It was a really, really well-done movie. Uh, and it, it got critical acclaim, and I think it deservedly so, made decently in the box office. I don't think anybody was expecting a Planet of the Apes movie to actually be that good. So, And it was. And so Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is a sequel to that. And it deals with, again, spoilers, folks. It deals with... Um, Humanity getting pretty much wiped out by the simian flu. It's not anything that the apes actually did, uh, but that they, you know, the the research being done on the apes kind of helped create. Uh, and so, you know, humanity is whittled down to maybe a few thousand people, maybe a million. You know, they never really say in the movie how many people it whittled down to. And these humans are trying to get to a dam, a hydroelectric dam so that they can power the colony that they've kind of made in a city. And in so doing, they run into the uh, one, what well, one could argue the protagonist of the origin of rise of the planet of the apes. They run into Caesar and you know, and his group of apes, which they've pretty much created an entire society, uh, albeit a very, uh, you know, tribal and, and one could say basic, though that's that's putting it mildly that that's actually you know that's that's underrating it maybe <laughs> uh and in this you know various things happen uh, so a lot of, or at least one of the apes doesn't trust the humans and so this this big you know battle occurs and it ends up being very much like uh if you've ever seen the original planet of the apes movies the last one of the original series was battle for planet of the apes it was very much like that. Uh, you know, the plot was similar where you have, you know, these ragtag humans uh, fighting, you know, going after the the ape society and kind of back and forth. Uh, it happened. Uh, you know, both both sides were really uh, at fault, though, maybe in the original Planet of the Apes in, in battle for Planet of the Apes, uh, the humans were perhaps just the bad guys. But <laughs> but in this case, you find out both are very much uh, at fault. And, you know, the production level of this movie was fantastic. I mean, it was really top notch. Everything looked good. Uh, the apes were, as far as I know, entirely CGI. And they 
showed a whole lot of emotion with SCGI. Good work to them. Uh, I was, you know, or kudos to, to the producers uh, or to the, you know, the team there, the production team, because it looked good. And I mean, you really felt the sadness whenever, you know, an ape would have a really sad face. You, I mean, you just, it, everything was getting expressed uh, in ways that really the original apes movies couldn't even dream of pulling off. In fact, even the 2001 Planet of the Apes movie uh, couldn't pull off. And of course, in that, that they, it was just like the original Planet of the Apes where it was humans uh, in, in ape costumes, however more advanced they had become. Uh, and so you just, you got, you got a lot more feeling. You could really, you know, relate more to the apes in this. And I, and I thought that was so cool. Uh, and I really appreciated though. Some people in the Liberty movement didn't, I appreciated a lot what they were trying to portray, uh, with the apes. And I think in many ways, this is telling, to some people, it is telling another origin story uh, for, you know, for civilization. And this happens a lot. Uh, it seems to be a, a growing idea in Hollywood because uh, Man of Steel showed uh, very much an, an origin story, an origin for all kinds of, you know, like really like ancient origins, ide- ancient origin ideas that are prevalent in humanity or that are prevalent in humanity and stories that humans tell. Uh, Man of Steel did that. Of course, last week we talked about Noah and Noah was all about that. And it certainly wasn't telling a Christian story by any stretch. Uh, and I think, I think Dawn of the Planet of the Apes was doing the same thing in a way in highlighting, you know, how, how these, how these things are. And so I, I thought it just, it had, you know, again, excellent action. I wish I would have been happy, honestly, if the movie just, you know, had no action. And it just showed the apes living their life because it was so beautiful seeing them live the way they lived out, out in the forest. Uh, it, it really was, it was, it was amazing. And then of course, you know, they have the, they have the cardinal rule I'll say of ape does not kill ape. They took that from battle for, for uh, planet of the apes as well. And I love that law or I love that, you know, that kind of that, that moray, I guess you could say, uh, whenever they see guns, the apes would destroy the guns. Obviously you can see where this movie was very much appealing to me. Okay. Um, and yeah, there was certainly a degree of tribalism involved. And I think that's what a lot of people are knocking is this, this notion of tribalism, but you've got to, I think you need to separate. This is a problem that I have is that people don't, they don't separate shamanism from tribalism because if humans are social creatures, then perhaps they are inherently tribal. That doesn't mean you lose individuality or that you act necessarily within the tribe. It just means that you recognize everyone involved. Okay. And shaman and too many people, you know, take this idea of tribalism when they instantly hear it, they just, they picture people, you know, shaking, uh, you know, sticks with, uh, with bones on them and all this, you know, all this crazy stuff. Um, that's, that's not what it's about at all. You know, that's shamanism, all that, that, you know, medicine man stuff and, and, you know, the more wacky, uh, or you don't have to consider it wacky, but the more wacky spiritual ideas and all that, that's a totally different case. And Dawn of the Planet of the Apes did not show the apes acting that way at all. In fact, they were very, they wanted to learn. They wanted to know more. Like, in fact, there's an orangutan in it that's really cute that just wants more books from humans and wants to know how to read. It's just so thirsty for knowledge. Uh, so you, 
you know, I, I think people are attacking it on this idea that, yeah, you know, all the, you know, humans are naturally uh, tribal. And when, you know, when the leader says, let's go to war, we go to war. I didn't get that at all. Uh, not at all. In fact, there was an incredible message of peace and the desire for peace. Unfortunately, again, spoiler alert, the movie ends to where it doesn't seem like there's going to be any peace. Uh, but that was, they definitely portrayed peace as the order of nature in this movie for both humans and apes. And I, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, there, there's some other like pretty crazy stuff. Like they mentioned, uh, you know, how do humans still have weapons after so many millions and billions of humans have died? Uh, well, fortunately we got those stockpiles from the FEMA camps. <laughs> I thought, I was like, wow, really? Are you going to, are you going to make a pro move for this is why the government needs to stockpile weapons? Because in the future, the apes might kill us. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but that that's just a, a minor part of the film. The over the overarching messages I th I thought were were just really great, and the in fact the even there was a great point where the guy says one of the one of the humans says you know really the strength of these apes is that they don't need electricity or they don't need um you know they don't need a lot of power to survive and that makes them stronger. And that, that's a, that's an interesting concept to consider. I'm not saying think primitivism. I'm just saying. You know, maybe what if that was a nice redundancy that people would, you know, thought about? Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I really, you know, just a great movie. You know, some people were comparing this to The Empire Strikes Back. Now, I wouldn't say that it has, that it's as, you know, as a, uh, wasn't as good as The Empire Strikes Back as far as its cultural reach. You know, I mean, The Empire Strikes Back is widely considered one of the greatest movies of all time. But I certainly feel like if Rise, if you're comparing Rise of Planet of the Apes, and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, that is definitely Star Wars to Empire. Like, I mean, that is re that is a fair comparison because this was leaps and bounds better than Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And Rise of the Planet of the Apes wasn't bad at all. Uh, so it, one of the best movies I'd seen in some time, really in, in some years, I think this is one of the best uh, that I had that I had seen. So check it out if you haven't. I mean, if go ahead and, you know, download a cam. I don't care. Uh, and, and, or go to the theater and, and catch it. Uh, it is available in 3d. I could, I couldn't care less about 3d. Uh, I think it's annoying. And really if a movie relies upon 3d effects to be a selling point, then I debate whether or not the movie's any good in the first place. Uh, but this does not rely on that. I watched it in 2d and it was fantastic. And I think it, it just, it gives you some real, it gives you a lot of things to think about, uh, very much. And in fact, one of the interesting points that it makes you think about is that is the very presence of guns, could that be considered an unconscious threat to people? Ooh. Anyway, hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, <laughs> I know we kind of went, went full crazy on this one, but that's all right. Uh, anyway, feel free to donate to the show. A lot of you have recently. Thank you so, so much for that. I will be back next week. Harpy Lucam. To see you on the other side. Got some specials coming. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com. And connect with us there. Find links from today's show. And catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. <laughs>
Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to The Evolution. 